0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It certainly has been quite some time since I was on the air last with you guys. I would probably like to say that it's been um, just over two weeks at best since I was on the air. That seems like a very long time. Now, I do recall telling you all when I was on the air the last time that I was going to be going on assignment. Well that assignment was, uh, being on vacation. And, uh my wife and I certainly, uh, did enjoy our trip. Um, hated, hated to see it come to an end, but, you know, all vacations have to end at some point. Um, and the best part is, you know, not only was it a good vacation, but lots of good memories and lots of, um, good things to be able to, um, relay back to, uh, friends of ours, uh, family, and, uh, being able to tell them, uh, tell all of you, um, not only just so much where we went, but just how much fun we had. Uh, As a matter of fact, believe it or not, um, we went to, um, Northwest Ohio. Um, well, we started out in, uh, Western Pennsylvania, uh, visiting the, the United Flight 93 Memorial, um, which was, uh, very, very well done. And, um, Somerset County, uh, right around uh, Shanksville, about 80 miles southeast of Pittsburgh. Hard to believe this September will mark uh, 22 years ago, uh, September 11th of uh, 2001. I was a senior in college when that uh, terrible um, uh, terrible uh, moment occurred um, where a great uh, deal of innocence was lost. As tragic as it was that two planes uh, crashed into the World Trade Towers and another plane crashed into the Pentagon, as tragic as it was that the uh, passengers aboard uh, Flight 93, United Flight 93, lost their lives, we must be reminded of the fact that they made sacrifices aboard that plane by fighting, by uh, fighting against the hijackers, by literally. Saving not only the uh, White House, but the United States Capitol. And when I was in, when my wife and I were in the museum, I was, you know, looking at um, looking at where, um, sadly, the terrorists had succeeded that day and then looking at the Capitol and thinking to myself, my gosh, what if a plane had crashed into the Capitol? What if the Uh, passengers had not fought back against the hijackers. You know, what if they had not learned uh, when they had learned that three other planes had met their targets and now all of a sudden we're part of something, this is no random hijacking. This is not, uh, this is part of a broader um, movement. So when I saw um, the, the Capitol, I thought to myself, my gosh, this, would have been like the equivalent or a hundred times worse compared to what happened in august of 1814 when the british burned washington that was a 9-11 of its time every building was burnt with the exception of the uh, patent office building so it's just one of those reminders that um, throughout mankind there have been uh, 9-11s not just in the united states but elsewhere around the world but um, but they have happened and uh, for each generation it's had a um, uh, life-changing impact for my parents it was the kennedy assassination or the assassination of president kennedy for my grandparents it was uh, pearl harbor Uh, so each generation has something that they can uh, relate to um, in terms of knowing uh, where they were when a particular um, incident happened. Uh, I remember um, having breakfast with friends of mine uh, in college and we learned that a plane had crashed into the World Trade Tower and my first thought was maybe it was just some little prop plane um, or Cessna. When I got to class then I learned that a second plane had crashed and then I realized no, this is no random accident. This is not a random incident. This is, uh, this is serious. America was at war. Um, I, I would like to think that we are a lot safer since 9-11, but at the same time, we still have to remain very vigilant as a nation, um, given the world that we're living in. Not trying to get political, but um, but I don't think anybody is immune uh, anymore. Uh, when I look back on it, um, there was a, obviously a loss of uh, innocence. Each generation can relate to some kind of Loss of innocence when a um, when a cataclysmic event happens on uh on unprecedented magnitude never seen before, but other than the flight ninety three memorial my uh, wife and I got to do um, a lot of great things in Northwest Ohio. We visited the uh, National Great Lakes Museum we got to visit the Marblehead lighthouse, which is uh lake erie's oldest lighthouse as a matter of fact, it turned two hundred years old last year, so Uh, I was able to bring back a souvenir uh, commemorating its uh, 200th anniversary from uh, last year. But we got to climb, we got to go the full 77 steps up to the top and uh, had some very nice views of uh, Lake Erie. Uh, We did, um, well, I'll tell you this much. If you want to learn more about Northwest Ohio, just go to Ohio.gov and um, click on uh, the region and it will uh, give you everything you need to know. But uh, what I do know is that we are uh, about ready to start a new, um, or I would say about, uh, we are getting ready to start a new uh, podcast topic uh, book series. And I'm sure many of you were wondering, you know, not only, w- not only um, number one, I'm sure many of you were wondering when was uh, Kirk Monroe going to get back on the air again next? And then number two, what direction is he going to take us in terms of what, what are we going to learn um, about history-wise Well, I will tell you this. Uh, We will be um, in the War of 1812, and I can tell you this much. I'm not going to give it totally all away, but what we're going to be talking about pertains to something that my wife and I um, visited in terms of a historic site uh, during our vacation. Uh, Now, believe it or not, we uh, also... um, did drive into Michigan, and we went into Canada, so we got to visit um, Amherstburg and Windsor, Ontario, and uh, got to visit um, uh, the village of Amherstburg, which is uh, very well worth uh, doing. Uh, So, if you ever want to visit Amherstburg and Windsor, Ontario, I uh, strongly uh, recommend visiting those places. So anyways, yes, what we're going to be talking about in this next series is uh, War of 1812 related. Um, you could say on one hand that it is a battle, but it's not one of those battles that is a one-day thing. It's actually going to be a siege, a siege that, um, that is going to uh, either make or break uh, the well-being of the Northwest Territory. Of course, when we think of the Northwest Territory, we think of, you know, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, and at one time, Northeast Minnesota. So, um, in this uh, new podcast, uh, book topic series, we're going to uh, talk about, a, like I said, about a particular place uh, in the Northwest uh, Territory, but a particular place um, in terms of a structure that, um, that was significant, that was significant to uh, halting uh, the enemy halting the enemy from, um, from not only um, penetrating through the heart of the uh, Northwest Territory in terms of what lied. Um, at, really, to me, uh, when I think of the entry point of the Northwest Territory, I like to think of um, Ohio. But not just the Northwest uh, Territory, but perhaps had the enemy prevailed, who knows, that enemy could have spread uh, elsewhere, say further south into Kentucky, Tennessee, maybe uh, western Pennsylvania into what we know as West Virginia. I know if I keep on going, I might give it away. But the bottom line is that uh, the Northwest was very crucial early on in the War of 1812 and in um, preserving not just the, the territory itself, but um, along Lake Erie. So here we go with our uh, prologue. And at the end, I will uh, tell you all the uh, the title of the book that we will be uh, talking about. So here we go. When most people think about where the United States stood come the start of the 19th century, the first thing which often enters their minds would be uh, the Louisiana Purchase of 1803. Lewis and Clark, you know, going on that uh, westward uh, journey all the way to the Pacific Ocean, but before that could happen, of course, we have uh, the Louisiana Purchase, which was acquiring um, land that had um, was in the possession of the French or uh, by the French government. They ceded that uh, land to us in a diplomatic manner without having to resort to any kind of war or violence And as we know, the Louisiana Purchase uh, basically uh, doubled the size of of the United States. So while the Louisiana Purchase of 1803 was paramount in regards to doubling the United States' territory size-wise, something else took place in 1803 that was of great significance. March 1st, 1803, Ohio went from territory status to official statehood. Ohio was the uh, Ohio became the the official seventeenth uh, state of the Union. Come March first, eighteen o three, just a few years earlier, uh, right after eighteen hundred, she was already starting to uh, file papers, um, or the people of Ohio, or rather the government, the the Ohio Territory government was starting to file papers. Given that her population was uh, sixty thousand and over. Given that uh, under the old Northwest Territory guidelines from uh, 1787, that once a territory um, was 60,000 and over in population, um, that government, uh, the territory government, could uh, apply for uh, statehood status. So Ohio has definitely uh, exceeded those uh, expectations. Uh, just before um, March 1st, 1803, when she um, fully um, is accepted into the Union. So, yes, March 1st, 1803, Ohio went from territory status to official statehood acceptance as the United States' 17th state into the Union. Ohio's official entrance into the Union marked a unique first, as she had come from the Northwest Territory, which got established 16 years earlier in 1787 by the Confederation Congress. And yes, folks, there is a Congress that's still in existence. Uh, while you know, delegates in Philadelphia are um, trying to uh, come up with something different. You know, they're you know, the Articles of Confederation is either going to be greatly modified or it's going to be completely scrapped, and we're going to start. We're going to um, do something that's totally different that will be, say, ten times better than the Articles of Confederation. So but yes the confederation congress did establish the northwest uh, territory but even as ohio's uh, population per american westward settlement began expanding starting in 1796 towards the end of of uh, george washington's presidency congress uh, was smart enough to keep uh, close tabs on uh, what else was going along what else was taking place rather in the northwest It wasn't just Ohio. How about the state uh, west of Ohio in between um, Illinois and Ohio, uh, being that of Indiana? So four years later, come May 7th of 1800, Congress enacted legislation to form the Indiana Territory, which helped divide the Northwest Territory in preparation of Ohio's eventual statehood acceptance. While Ohio had entered into the Union in March of 1803, the overall size of the Northwest Territory underwent some, um, underwent some changes. The overall size of the Northwest Territory got reduced to roughly the size of present-day Ohio, including the eastern half of Michigan's Lower Peninsula, as well as a small portion of land in southeastern Indiana, which stood near Ohio's western border section. So it's fair to say that the, um, that the jigsaw puzzle has undergone some um, drastic reforms. Now that Ohio's been admitted into the Union, or is in the process of being admitted into the Union, we've now got to um, alter um, some other things in terms of uh, territorial boundaries. And that, of course, is no easy work. Although Ohio's admittance into the Union was paramount, given she had come from the Northwest Territory, her sense of safety from outsiders still remained vulnerable. So if her sense of safety from outsiders is still vulnerable, I'm sure some of you are wondering, where does this vulnerability lie? I mean, yes, Ohio you know, when we think of Ohio and see Ohio on a map, you know, yes, there's only one body of water, and that's Lake Erie. So if Ohio's not bordering the Atlantic Ocean, you know, it would be easy to think, oh, you know, all she has to worry about is one body of water, but it's not so much bodies of water, folks. Uh, we also have to think about issues that are inland, well uh, west of uh, water, or perhaps um, in uh, territory say uh well south of lake erie um that does not touch lake erie but you know it's not even just lake erie itself there are rivers and not just rivers but who but when we it's not just the presence of um geographical uh settings or features but it could be that other uh people from other backgrounds could still be uh posing as a threat to what would be a, um not just Posing as a general threat, but threat to uh, perhaps westward expansion into the um, Old North, into the Northwest Territory. So, although the 1795 Treaty of Greenville from eight years earlier reshaped the boundary between Indian tribal lands north of the Ohio River, including territory for European Americans in the southern and eastern regions of Ohio, the peace that uh, came about following this treaty this treaty never fully um, did last uh, long term. Just three months after Ohio was officially admitted into the Union, at the start of June, being June 6th of 1803, the first of a two-part treaty occurred in uh, what we know as uh, Vincennes, Indiana, which is well down in the uh, southern part of Indiana, not far from the Indiana-Kentucky-Illinois line. But the first part behind the Treaty of Vincennes occurred on June 6, 1803. It involved the U.S. government and the Western Indian nations from the Miami, Weah, and Shawnee, whom were forced to accept American ownership of the Vincennes Tract. What is the Vincennes Tract? Well, it was a piece of real estate, or a piece of property, I should say, that ha- which had been seized from... Britain during the Revolutionary War. So given that um, around 1777, I want to say, the U.S., um, the uh, Continental Army, rather, I should say, defeated um, a British uh, unit in Vincennes, but even in the post-Revolutionary War era, uh, the British um, did not still um, accept full defeat. And the Indians living along that area, being the Way, the Wea and the uh, Shawnee and the um, Miami, were very um, reluctant and hesitant to give up this um, piece of property. Well, eventually, you know, um, it did happen, of course, from June 6th of 1803, that uh, these Indian tribes were finally forced to accept um, that this piece of real estate did belong now into the hands of the um, U.S. government. Part two of the uh, Vincennes uh, Treaty took place a year later on August 27th, 1804, uh, 14 months after um, the first part uh, from a year earlier. This one involved purchasing land from the Miami, Weah, and uh, Shawnee, south of the Vincennes um, parcel and Buffalo Trace, north of the Ohio River and east of the Wabash River i tell you, a lot of things happening within a short period of time. Yes, people, you know, one group of people are benefiting from the treaty, while another group of people are, are seeing um, their ways of life being altered. I mean, they'd already seen their ways of life altered from a treaty nine years earlier, which they thought maybe had been the last of, of any kind of uh, treaties they would see. But I'm beginning to wonder if there are going to be, be um, a couple of Indians, uh, who knows, maybe they could be blood-related or uh, individuals who share the same ideologies and beliefs, whom will decide to take a stand and say enough is enough. No more treaties. No more um, giving in. You just have to wonder, when is it going to be enough? When is, it, when is there going to be a barrier, a stopping point? Two years after March 1st of 1803, another major land purchase in Indiana was conducted at the Indiana Territory um, estate of um, Grouseland. It just so happened to be um, Grouseland was the home of uh, Indiana Territory Governor William Henry Harrison, a, a native of Virginia. As a matter of fact, William Henry Harrison, he was born in 1773, three years after the Boston Massacre, and he was born, um, he was the last British, uh, he would go on to become the last British-born subject who who would one day become uh, President of the United States. So when he was born in 1773, we had still not officially declared our separation from England, so he would be the last um, living, he would be the last president in America's history to be born under the reign of a British monarch, or to be the subject of a British monarch, I should say. So uh, definitely when you think of William Hen- Henry Harrison, think of uh, him as being the last, um, the last president whom was, um, whom was born as a subject to uh, royal authority. So, yes, uh, a treaty was conducted on August 21st, 1805 at um, Indiana Territory Governor William Henry, William Henry Harrison's home at, in Vincennes, the Treaty of Grousland. Uh, the Treaty of Grouseland involved Indian leaders from Little Turtle to Bacongahelas, that name is spelled B-U-C-K-H-O-N-G-A-H-E-L-A-S. Bacongahilas. These um, leaders had been present 14 years earlier when they led a band of Western Indians 44 miles south of Kikionga, uh, which is located in present-day Fort Wayne, Indiana. Little Turtle and Bacongahilas, along with uh, Blue Jacket and other Indian leaders, Led a band of of Western Indians, yes, forty-four miles south of kikiyonga resulting in the largest defeat of an American army. And I know a good number of you were with me from the previous uh, podcast when we talked about um, the victory with no name, about the Native American defeat of the first U.S. Army. I'm sure some of you are kind of wondering, are are we um, where are we going? We must, I mean, it is War of 1812 related, but we must be getting somewhere closer to our end result. So, yes, what happened 44 miles south of Kikionga did result in the largest defeat of an American army. But what do you know? 14 years later, in 1805, Little Turtle and Bakongahilas, Blue Jacket, and others are now surrendering lands from southern and northeastern Indiana, including northwest Ohio. It's you know deja vu all over again of uh, some sorts here. This treaty set aside land north of the Ohio River, west of the Wabash River, to the south of uh, Vincennes Tract, now in possession of the U.S. government. Tribes impacted the most, there were a handful of them, but most notably the Miami, the Weah, Shawnee, uh, Lenape, uh, just to name a few. Matter of fact, when I was on uh, vacation, uh, my wife and I uh, met someone at the Marblehead Lighthouse, uh, a volunteer, and, um, well, long story short of it, I um, gave her a podcast card of mine, and and the reason I did that was because um, two years ago I uh, did a series on uh, what's called Brilliant Beacons, a history of the American lighthouse, and given that um, the Marblehead Lighthouse is the oldest lighthouse on Lake Erie, uh, I felt that they could find um, the series I did on lighthouses of uh, useful importance, but long story short of it, uh, this person I met just so happened to um, hail from uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and and um, knew um, she told me that she knew some information about the uh, the victory with no name, but she also said that there were things that she was still needing to learn more about. So I told her that I had done a series on on uh, the victory with no name, and she um, said that uh, she looked forward to learning more about other stuff. And I'm not saying any of this to flaunt people. I, I I'm not. I I'm not. But. Uh, the most important thing is to be able to get the word out. And by getting the word out, it uh, does help others understand um, what happened. If they know some basic stuff, that's great. But if they learn more about what happened, then they'll have a better understanding of just how significant uh, the event itself was. And and knowing that, you know, where my wife and I were, we weren't too ter- terribly far from the Ohio Indiana line. But to think that, um, that where we, um, where we were, um, uh, one of the sites we got to visit was the Fallen Timbers Historic Site. And I remember mentioning that, um, to you all who were with me when we did uh, the Victory with No Name. Um, uh, it was very worth uh, visiting the Fallen Timbers uh, Historic Site where, um, Anthony Wayne and his forces, uh, basically Anthony Wayne um reinvented uh the US army given that 3 years before um, had endured one of its worst ever uh defeats so my wife and I did get to um see firsthand that the um that the park we visited being the Fallen Timbers Historic Park was in fact based upon um, knowledge uh gained by historians and archaeologists that the park that we um, did the trail on was, in fact, where the actual Battle of Fallen Timbers took place, so uh, that was um, very well worth uh, doing, um, and it's uh, located in uh, Maumee, Ohio, not far from uh, where we stayed. But anyways, uh, back to our prologue here. By 1805, at the same time that um, another, this other major treaty has taken place at uh, William Henry Harrison's estate of Grouseland in uh, Vincennes, by 1805, two Shawnee Indian brothers had come to see enough disruption behind their people's ways of living, primarily due to the U.S. government's encroachment through conducting treaties. The oldest brother, being Tecumseh, was born around 1768, uh, about two years before the infamous Boston Massacre took place, He was born in uh, present-day Xenia, Ohio. That's spelled X-E-N-I-A. Xenia is uh, north of uh, Dayton. And of course, if you look at a map of Ohio, Dayton is north of Cincinnati, so uh, Xenia is uh, just north of Dayton. Uh, Tecumseh was old enough to remember at a young age seeing his people lose territory to American colonists per a series of border confrontations. So when I think of border confrontations, yes, they could involve what we know as Ohio and present-day Kentucky, Ohio, present-day West Virginia, Ohio, present-day Indiana. I mean, we could go on and on, but Tecumseh is seeing firsthand, even before shots are fired around the world at Lexington and Concord, that there are uh, confrontations that – that are, are, that are disruptive, confrontations that are not only disruptive in the present moment, but will have tendency, will, will have an even bigger uh, tendency to become more disruptive should war um, take uh, place between the U.S. and Britain with America's uh, quest to become fully independent from uh, King George III. So, um, Tecumseh would uh, partake against further American confrontations, most notably in 1794, where U.S. General Anthony Wayne led his forces to victory over western Indian tribes at fallen timbers. The younger brother being Tenskwatawa, whom went on to be, be called the Shawnee Prophet, he established a religious movement whose purpose sought to get Indians into rejecting all things European and return to the proper ways of living. You know, when you see, yes, it's one thing you know for treaties to take place, and you think everybody can live happily ever after under, under a treaty, that has not always been the case. Some people on one side who might be more on the losing side might be okay with it all. Little Turtle was okay with the Treaty of Green, with the Treaty of Greenville. He, as a matter of fact, Little Turtle was probably one of the very few exceptions with Indians, whom uh, accepted what would become the future. Uh, Little Turtle was okay um, with a lot of things. He was at peace with it, but not Sha- but not uh, the Shawnee Indian brothers of Tenskwatawa and uh, Tecumseh. So we can even see um, factions, rifts amongst the Indians, you know, from an older generation versus a younger generation. It doesn't mean that the older generation is against everything the younger generation's doing, but but when there's not full unification, you could see how um, some some tribal uh, elders were more acceptable with um, giving in versus those whom are younger. Who see a, who see their future being robbed, to say, hey, this is not the way to go. The more we give in, the more we're going to lose out, and then we're not going to have anything left to pass down to generations that come after us. That come that come after we do, I should say. So yes, uh, Tenskwatawa is his philosophy is to reject all things European and return to proper ways of living. Come 1808, the final, pretty much the final full year of uh, Thomas Jefferson's presidency, the brothers banded together by establishing what's known as Prophetstown, a village located north of present-day Lafayette, Indiana. Uh, North of Indianapolis, uh, southwest of uh, South Bend, Indiana. But Prophetstown became a... um, became a hub of sorts. Indians that came from the north would come down to Prophetstown, Indians from the south would come um, in a northerly direction. So you have a diverse tribal community of uh, of Indians banding together to hear what the brothers have to say, the Shawnee brothers of uh, Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa. As the community within Prophetstown grew, so too did Tenskwatawa's calls for criticizing the Americans as he viewed them as um, offspring of evil spirit. And I'm, sure, and, and, and I'm sure some of you are thinking to yourselves, what does offspring of evil spirit mean? Well, perhaps for Tenskwatawa and Tecumseh and like many other Indians whom are clinging on to their traditional ways of life, They see the Americans as invasive species. They're not welcomed. They've tried left and right to disrupt us. They've tried left and right to to take what is ours. They come in here with all these fancy stories about how the government had promised settlers X amount of land in terms of acreage, uh, given that they had uh, nobly um, fought um, during the American Revolution in terms of... um, securing independence, political independence, from uh, King George III. They've come in here with all these uh, claims, uh, reasons for why they have, are to be entitled uh, to come into uh, the Northwest. But Tenskwatawa and Tecumseh, along with everyone else at Prophetstown, are wanting to put a stop to this. This is their last stand, and they are not going to take it anymore with the invasives, the evil spirit. The invasives, being the Americans in the eyes of Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa and their, uh, and their uh, followers, they see the evil spirit as, as an institution of uh, people whom just who have no boundaries, whom, whom, yes, may have access to something, but once they have access to it, they're going to want more. They're just going to keep going and going until they have finally met everything that's in sight, if it means disrupting everyone else whom came before them. Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa might have been saviors in their community of Prophetstown, and I have no doubts that they were. However, by 1811, American forces under General William Henry Harrison have decided that action is needed. And we're not talking about another treaty here, folks. We're talking about militaristic action is here. A battle takes place, and it's not just a battle, but it's known as the Battle of Tippecanoe, which is... Um, which uh, Tippecanoe is um, south of uh, South Bend, Indiana, but it's on the outskirts. But not only was there a battle known as uh, Tippecanoe that took place where uh, General William Henry Harrison's forces defeated Tenskwatawa and Tecumseh and their warriors, but Prophetstown uh, was destroyed. And by destroying uh, Prophetstown and defeating the Indians at Tippecanoe, perhaps for General Harrison, maybe this is what's needed to uh, prevent uh, more uprisings and to allow peaceful entryway way into territory uh, west of Ohio. Not just west of Ohio, but really, in a sense, the borderline, the borderland. Now, despite General Harrison's victory over Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa at Tippecanoe to destroying their village of Prophetstown, tension, or I should say conflict, still persisted within the Northwest Territory. I don't think that should come as a surprise, Yes, Ohio was admitted into the Union. Yes, we would like to believe that all of that was peaceful, but I think it's fair to say we've learned that that uh, just because Ohio was admitted into the Union it didn't automatically mean that that the other states that would eventually be admitted into the Union would have a peaceful um would have a peaceful acceptance and and not not just through members of Congress but in terms of acceptance meaning those whom had already occupied the land or the lands in, say, Indiana and Illinois and Michigan prior to um, westward uh, migration into those uh, territories. So, yes, despite General Harrison's victory over Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa tip a canoe to destroying uh, their village of Prophetstown, yes, tension, or I should say conflict, still uh, persisted within the Northwest Territory, uh, considering, for one, there is a uh, British troop presence. So technically, we can say, Houston, that we have a problem. And one of the problems is that we, have a, we still have this presence of British troops that still remain strong along the upper and lower Great Lakes. And it's not just the presence of British troops and forts, but how about partnerships with Indian tribes, trading alliances, we have british troops and um, officers that have married into indian families so this is the way to go about keeping the alliances together yes you know they could still trade with um american indian traders but that's as far as it's going to go we'll trade with you we just don't want you expanding because if you expand you're going to um you're going to cause us more problems and you, you really you think you have an army but your army is not anywhere close to um, being able to take on a formidable army like the British. I mean, yes, we may have defeated the world's most formidable army in 1781, but I think it's fair to or 1781 that led to the uh, Treaty of Paris in 1783, but I think it's fair to say that times have changed, and they haven't changed for the better. Yes, we've... Uh, defeated Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa at Tippecanoe to destroying their village of Prophetstown, but that doesn't automatically mean that we have a perfect army. I'm not pointing anything at William Henry Harrison, but we may have to dig um, a lot deeper as to what really is the problem as um, 1812 lies around the corner. So, um, yes we have a problem with british troop presence that remains strong along the upper and lower great lakes that included partnerships with indian tribes but the bigger problem is that war between the u.s and britain just this idea of both nations going to war is inevitable in other words it's just a matter of time before the united states wants to declare war on britain why why do we want to declare war on britain i mean yes we've got the British, or do we want to declare war on them because they are still on our territory in the upper Great, upper and lower Great Lakes? That could be one reason, but let's find out if there are others. Well, prior to General Harrison's victory at Tippecanoe, the U.S. as a nation was not safe along the seas, most notably the Atlantic Ocean. That's not to say that we've explored and navigated the Pacific, but we're probably it's fair to say ocean-wise it's more the Atlantic. Well, given that the U.S. is not safe along the seas, in this case being the Atlantic Ocean, it has to do with the fact that the British Royal Navy come 1807 began implementing tighter, or I should say, severe restrictions on American trade with France. Hey, they were our allies during the American Revolution, I thought they would still be our allies even in the post American Revolutionary War world temporarily but remember even in uh when George Washington was president and about the time his uh, I think his second term had begun we have a very tough choice to make do we side with the French or side with the British given that France and Britain are at war with one another here we are trying to uh make our way along the seas with um trade, in terms of trading with Britain and France, well, what does Washington do? He imposes an act of neutrality. In other words, we're not going to side with either nation. This is a matter that does not involve us, but we need to stay out of it, because whoever we side with, it's going to backfire as well, given that, okay, if we side with the French, then the British are going to hate us probably even more, and for all we know, they might want to cut off trade with us. So it's a double-edged sword, but the sad part is, is that, okay, it's bad enough if there are um, severe restrictions on American trade uh, with France now that Britain has imposed, but how about Britain partaking in, in what's called impressment? And of course, when we think of impress, that means that's a good thing, but, in, but when I say impressment, I-M-P-R-E-S-S-M-E-N-T, impressment here, folks, is a bad thing. British naval officers ordered unauthorized search and seizures of American ships, which led to capturing American sailors against their will. So can you imagine if you're an American sailor in 1807 or, or before, or leading up to 1812, a British vessel blocks your route, comes up, halts you, only for... Um, only for you to be blocked. You have no way out. We're not talking one ship. We're talking at least maybe three ships could cut off your um, cut off your route. Now all of a sudden, officers are ordering their men uh, below to come search your um, come search your dock, come search your stations for men that, in some instances, were ex-British uh, sailors whom had gotten tired of serving under. Um, who just gotten tired of serving in the military. They want a better life, but they don't want to serve in the British military. They'd rather serve in the American military. But they're being taken against their own will, and not just those whom deserted, but natural-born Americans are being taken, folks. They're being taken for a variety of reasons. One of them has to do with the fact that Britain is claiming a shortage of sailors. I often wonder just how true if there really was a shortage of sailors. But nonetheless, folks, they are taking American sailors left and right, and they're doing it as a means of sticking it to us by saying that, hey, look, you may have gotten your political independence from us, but we still have the upper hand economically, not just uh, from a profit standpoint, but from the high seas. We still reign supreme on the high seas. We're not going to respect you all. And we'll and we'll come search your ships whenever we feel like it. And if it means taking your men against their own will, then ha- then, then what are you going to do? So this is the way it was, folks. And I didn't know this at all. And I'm sure most of you all wouldn't have known this, but it blew me away. Although Britain's practice of impressment dated back to 1664. Did you hear that, folks? Britain's practice of impressment dated back to 1664. That means that the practice first began 42 years before America's first founding forefather was born, Benjamin Franklin, who was born in 1706. The practice dated almost 70 years before George Washington himself was born. So, if Britain has been doing this for now almost shy of 150 years, you have to wonder... When will the bleeding stop? So, although Britain's practice practice of impressment dated back to 1664, Congress in 1807 responded by passing the infamous Embargo Act on December 23rd, signed by President Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was getting fed up. I think it's fair to say that even the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists together could agree that impressment is a problem, but Thomas Jefferson believes that if we stop trading with Britain, here we go folks, Jefferson signed the legislation because by signing it, he, he, uh, the legislation sought to, to prevent Britain from engaging in further impressment of American sailors. He thought that this embargo would get Britain to finally wake up, smell the coffee, and say, hey, We need to stop impressing American sailors. Well, sadly, folks, this legislation didn't deter British Navy ships from stopping the practice altogether. But to make matters worse, President Jefferson's grand envision of dependency reduction on all British imported manufacturing goods came to a crushing blow. Basically, Thomas Jefferson wants... America to be self-dependent or self-independent. In other words, let's start in coming up with machines that will produce more uh, goods at home and we won't have to worry about um, relying relying upon foreign goods, which would also mean that the more foreign goods that we're having to take in, then the greater likelihood that of impressment happening. Uh, If we can make more goods at home, then we won't have to worry about, we could see a huge drastic reduction in in it with the um, activities pertaining to impressment. Well, I hate to tell you folks that President Jefferson's grand envision of dependency reduction on all British imported manufactured goods came to a crushing blow as the embargo alone ruined mercantile economies from New England and the mid-Atlantic states, forcing thousands into unemployment. And if I'm not mistaken, folks, I think about roughly 10,000 New Englanders were put out of work because of this embargo. And believe it or not, folks, there were plenty of people in New England who were willing to secede from the United States because of this embargo. Their livelihoods depended upon um, trade with uh, Britain. But um, but believe it or not, folks, secession <laughs> was taking place... The, the, The notion of secession was taking place even in the early part of the 19th uh, century, well, well before uh, the infamous Civil War um, occurred. Despite this legislation getting repealed, it came too late, given the Non-Intercourse Act of March 1809 went about lifting all embargoes on American shipping except for British and French ports. War with Britain was surreal. And I know some of you are thinking, you know, aren't I getting a little off track? I'm trying not to, but what I am trying to tell you all is a bigger story of where America is in the beginning of the 19th century. While many in Congress, if not all, were opposed to Britain's unlawful impressment actions imposed upon American sailors, the idea or notion of declaring war against England wasn't met with widespread enthusiasm. However, on June 18, 1812, Congress along party lines declared war on England. So, folks, this is a partisan uh, declaration of war. This is not a full grand unification of war. There are 18 states in America come 1812. Um, the 18th state that was admitted into the Union, just so happened to be in 1812, was Louisiana. So Congress did, along party lines on June 18, 1812, declared, Congress declared war on England. It was one thing for Congress to, to declare war, but <laughs> America has no formal army. Okay, if you don't have a formal army, then why are you declaring war? I think this is one thing that historians have been baffled with for so long. I can understand President James Madison being so fed up with the impressment. All these economic restrictions. Britain playing games with us on the high seas. Not respecting our means as an independent, uh, sovereign nation. I can respect all of that, why Madison would feel that way. But to declare war and know that America does not have a formal army? Why doesn't America have a true formal army? Well, Congress has cut military spending. It just it didn't happen with Madison's administration, but it has continued. As much as I uh, admire Thomas Jefferson um, for being such a great statesman, Jefferson was not big on standing armies. The Anti-Federalists disliked standing armies. They they saw them as a threat even in um, times of peace, so military spending was cut from the Jefferson administration into the current helm under President James Madison. Uh, To put it in brief terms, when this war began, it didn't start very well for the Americans. Shawnee leader Tecumseh helped lead a band of Native American tribes backed with British support by overtaking military posts to the north in the present-day Upper Peninsula of Michigan, including the mainland along Lake Erie, what we might think of as uh, southern or southeastern Michigan. Tecumseh and his band of Indian warriors, with the help from British military forces, were on a roll as 1812 came to an end. But bigger objectives lie to head to the south of the Michigan Territory, being none other than Ohio. Okay, so here we are, folks. I'm sure some of you are thinking, now, how has Ohio impacted all of this? Well, Ohio being on Lake Erie, just south of Michigan, you know, northwest territory, folks. So the story at stake here, folks, pertains to a fort located along the Maumee River near Toledo, near present-day Toledo. This fort began being built in February of 1813. This fort alone would undergo multiple sieges beginning three months later, starting in May of 1813. What would make or break Ohio's safety along the Maumee River had to do with preventing Tecumseh and his band of Indian warriors, along with British forces, from jeopardizing the Northwest Territory's present and future state. Even though, folks, Michigan is still a territory, it's now all in Indian hands. Now Tecumseh's got a bigger stake to the south, Ohio. Ohio is is the first and only state in the Northwest that is in the Union. What if we got our hands on Ohio? And what if we were able to... um, get ohio back into territory status instead of a state so many of you are probably wondering okay what is the title of this book what is the name of this fort because you know we've been talking about the story at stake being a fort now that that is going to be our story at stake is about a fort So, the title to our story here for our next uh, book topic podcast series, folks, is the following. Listen carefully. Men of Patriotism, Courage, and Enterprise, Fort Meigs in the War of 1812 by Larry L. Nelson. Well, folks, uh, my wife and I had the privilege of visiting Fort Meigs during our vacation, and I'm here to... uh, Tell you all about the story of Fort Meigs and how Fort Meigs was vital, and how, and not just being vital, but but uh, why it would uh, serve as a vital um, post uh, for America's uh, security in 1813. Well, that uh, concludes our uh, prologue to Men of Patriotism, Courage, and Enterprise: Fort Meigs in the War of 1812. Uh, when I'm on the air again next. We're going to learn more about, the, um, about what happened um, in the Michigan Territory. Uh, in other words, we need to uh, get a better understanding of why the Michigan Territory was taken so quickly and why the United States government, in terms of um, leaders from a militaristic standpoint, didn't do enough to um, protect the Michigan Territory, which ultimately did fall into the hands of Tecumseh, and his um, band of uh, Indian warriors and British forces. I'm sure some of you all will be very, very shocked. If not some of you, all of you would be very shocked to know just just um, what happened as a result of uh, Mich- the Michigan Territory falling into the hands of uh, the enemy. We'll also learn more about what's called the, um, the Black Swamp. I know that sounds kind of odd. The Black Swamp, but it is something that my wife and I learned about on vacation, and it was a vital uh, piece of um, a vital uh, piece of uh, geography, uh, to say the least. So, thank you for your time, as always. And uh, when I'm uh, back on the air again next, we're going to learn more about uh, some of the stuff that I just mentioned a moment ago. We'll uh, try to get in some other stuff as well too. Um, I'll make sure to fit in some other stuff, I should say. But I do look forward to uh, sharing. Uh, this uh series with you all, I think it 's going to be a great one and uh thank you again for being such ardent listeners and um, and if any of you know of others who are out there uh wanting to um either podcast or partake in listening to uh, podcasts uh tell them to come to um, tell them to come to my site i 'm more than welcome to have them um, have them be um, ardent listeners. Uh, Thank you again from the bottom of my heart. Without you guys, I don't know where I would be, but uh, I want to thank you all for uh, making this all the more uh, well worth the while. Take care, and wherever you all may live, uh, continue to stay safe.